Well, it's good to see you and be with you this Lord's Day morning. You know, whenever I prepared um, all of everything that we'll be looking at this morning, I had no idea of what would happen and the tragic news I would receive from the Raidersdorf family. But God is always on time, and he knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. The 61st Psalm in the Word of God. Psalm number 61. It's hard to read the words of Psalm 61 and not be reminded of Mr. William Cushing's famous hymn entitled, O Safe to the Rock That Is Higher Than I. He must have had and drawn great inspiration from the 61st Psalm in verse 2. Notice the words to this great old hymn. He said, O safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Hiding in thee, hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. If you have been a Christian and walked with the Lord for any period, amount of time in your life at all, you know the great and wonderful picture which that hymn and this psalm both paint for us. His life is filled with deep sorrow, pain, and tragedy. There are times when you and I may feel as if there is no one for us to turn to when we are experiencing trials and turmoil in our lives. When we need to be comforted, helped, or loved, and it seems as if nobody cares, that is when we become the most despairing. Some here this morning may feel feelings of loneliness, sadness, or perhaps at home you're surrounded by family or friends who do not share the same Christian convictions and worldview that you do. Perhaps you have an unbelieving husband or wife or you're facing resentment from co-workers for your faith in Christ. You may be grieving as you grow older and see and watch many of your dearly beloved friends and family whom you love pass away. As Christians, may we turn to God our rock who is higher, wiser, and stronger than we. Here are three simple points which help us to understand the truth of Psalm number 61. Number one, trusting God our rock when we are far away from home. Verses 1 and 2. Secondly, trusting a rock higher than ourselves in the second verse. And then last but not least, how God reveals himself to his trusting people. Trusting God, our rock, when we are far away from home. Number two, trusting a rock higher than ourselves. And finally, God reveals himself, how God reveals himself to his trusting people. Here it is again in the 61st Psalm. We have this metaphor appearing. And the metaphor is that God is our rock. 
The great Dr. Marvin E. Tate said this about Psalm 61, quote, The dominant metaphor in this psalm is that of distance from God, a sense of far awayness from the divine presence and at the end of the earth kind of experience, end quote. I want to jog your memory about the first verse in Psalm 61. Notice what David said. He said, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. Then in verse 2, from the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. This ends of the earth represents a metaphor whereby someone feels far away from God and his presence. For the Hebrew believer in the Old Testament, that place of God's presence was to be found in the city of Jerusalem, around the temple or the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. One of the great purposes of Psalm 61 is to help us overcome far away feelings from God. I don't know about you, but in my life, I have come to know what it means to feel far away from God from time to time. And that's what David said he felt like in the second verse. He said, from the end of the earth, I call to you. Now, what's interesting is that if you study the life and history of the man David, he really didn't leave Israel too often. I don't know that the Bible ever records him going outside of the boundaries of the nation of Israel for too long. And so what this is, what we have decided, or what the Lord has helped me to understand about Psalm 61, is that David is speaking metaphorically. He's using physical language to describe spiritual truths. I want to quote Dr. Tate again. He says, quote, Breaking down a perceived distance and the creation of a sense of nearness and presence is a major function of this prayer, end quote. What does that mean? Well, when we are experiencing feelings of far awayness, if that's even a word, now it is, <laughs> but when we are experiencing feelings of far awayness from God, one of the things that you can do is take up Psalm 61 upon your lips and use it as a prayer. And claiming and trusting and rejoicing and believing the words of the 61st Psalm when you have those feelings of being far away from God and trusting the Lord and watching God remove those faraway feelings and fill your heart with a sense of nearness to himself. We say it this way, I felt, God, I felt like God was on the other side of the world. Have you ever felt like that before? In your life and in your walk with the Lord, you just one time or maybe you're not experiencing the same kind of closeness to the Lord, that same level of fellowship with God that once was there is no longer there. Well, that's exactly how David felt in Psalm 61, a sense of far awayness from God. He said, I feel like God is a million miles away from me. I felt as if God was a world away. And in times of tragedy, like what we're experiencing this morning, it may seem to us like God is a world away, like God is a million miles away, like God is on the other side of the world. 
And when we feel those types of feelings and have those types of thoughts, Psalm 61 is a great source of strength and encouragement for us. We can pray along the lines, literally, of Psalm 61 and begin to bridge the gap between us and God. Somebody says, well, what do I do when I feel distant from the Lord? What do I do when I feel like there is a great gulf between God and I? Well, what does David do in Psalm 61? He prays. The answer to bridging the gap, when you sense that God is a million miles, or at least you feel or think that he is, the answer is to draw close to God in prayer. It may seem trite, but it's the truth. Secondly, trusting a rock higher than ourselves. I like the way that the Bible says this, how David says this in the second part of verse 2. He said, when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is a familiar metaphor. In fact, 20 times in the book of Psalms, David says that God was his rock. Now you remember, as we've studied this in the past, it's important to note that David uses God as his rock as an illustration David uses God as his rock as an object lesson in order to communicate what God was to him in the days that he fled from the evil king Saul and had to take refuge and find safety in the mountains and cliffs and crevices in ancient Israel. There was a literal rock, a literal crevice, a literal place that David had in mind when he wrote that God is my rock. Maybe he had more than one place in mind. We know that he sought uh, refuge in the cave of Adullam. You remember that in 1 Samuel chapter 21, 22. But there was a definite place, a crevice in the wall, in the bluffs where David found great solace and great safety. But there are two unique features of God being David's rock in Psalm number 61. The first one is that this rock is higher than David. The second one is we must be led to that rock. Now, what does it mean that the rock is higher than David? Well, if David's standing on the ground thinking about the rock, then it's literal. As he looks up, he knows where this place is. This is an elevated type of place. Perhaps you could even say that while David was hiding in the crevice of the rock, he felt a closer proximity to God. Well, why would he do that? Well, the rock is up in the mountains. It's up off of the ground. And did you know the ancient Israelites used to believe that the gods dwelt on mountains? You didn't know that, did you? Well, they certainly did. And uh, the Jewish people, while they don't worship the gods of the ancient Near East like the Canaanites did, they still use this 
mountain imagery to describe where they believed God was. Where did God meet with Moses? On the mountain. Where did the Lord Jesus Christ give the Olivet Discourse? On the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus give the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? Or the Sermon on the Mount? And here you have all throughout the Bible this imagery occurring of God meeting with his people on the mountain. And so David literally envisions him meeting with God in this crevice in the rock. Now this is important because Psalm 61 was probably written much later in the life of David. Notice verse 6, would you? Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. This had to have been written when? When David was king. Because he's talking about the promise of the Messiah that God made to him in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. And so David was already king when he received this messianic promise and hope. What does this mean? Well, if David is writing Psalm 61 after he was crowned king and installed officially in Jerusalem as the king, what this tells us is that David not only trusted God to be his rock when he was down and out hiding from King Saul, but David also trusted God to be his rock whenever he was up and out. Is it possible to be down and out? Yep, it certainly is. I've been down and out many times. Is it also possible to be up and out? Well, what does that even mean? It's possible to have life be so good. It's possible for things to be going so well and for things to be on the up and up that what happens to us when things are going well is that we begin to forget about God. We begin to uh, want to try to live the Christian life in our own strength. We would say something like it in our day in this culture. I got this. You ever heard that before? I got this. You got this. Well, you might have it, but God's always got it. And it's just as important to learn what it means to trust God when you're on the up and up and you actually might be up and out as it is when you are on the down and out. David did not forget that God was his rock of refuge even after he was installed king, he no longer had to run from the evil king Saul. He no longer had to seek refuge in the mountains and cliffs of Israel. He remembered that God was his rock and God was still his rock even after things were on the up and up. Now this is important. Do not trust in yourself. Do not trust in your own strength and ability. Someday it may leave you. And as you get older, it most certainly will leave you. Trust in the Lord, who is higher, greater, and loftier than we. Maybe this morning you have people who look up to you as their rock. Maybe you're a, in a position of leadership. And people, you know, in David's day, people looked up to him, didn't they? 
He was the king after all. His job was to execute justice and lead the people in the righteousness of God. And so many people are looking to David. Well, remember that we are no one's rock. And we have a rock that is infinitely higher than we are. Now, this is where the sermon gets interesting. It's that David not only needed God to be his rock, but notice what he said. At the beginning, he addresses God in Psalm 61 and verse 1 in prayer, and he's talking to God. But notice what happens at the end of the second verse. He said, oh God, lead me to the rock. What does this mean? Well, it's not only that David needed God to be his rock. It's that David needed God to lead him to that place. None of us ever come to God on our own accord. You might think you do. It may seem like you come to God on your own accord. But what we need is the Holy Spirit of God to draw us to God himself. One of the things that Jesus Christ said, one of my favorite passages, John chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He said, no one comes to me of their own accord. God must draw us to Christ. Here's an illustration. Many years ago in the country of England, when ships still sailed the sea, during storms, mariners would often run their boats upon the jagged rocks, sinking the ship and be cast into the ocean, many of them drowning. But they knew if they could get up the slippery rocks above the roaring tides, they could find safety. The problem was many of them could never make it up the bluffs, and so they perished at sea. But at one point, a man who lived atop the cliffs carved steps into the rock face leading up to the top from the ocean below so that shipwrecked sailors could climb up and live. While salvation is of God, entirely of his good grace, and while we trust him, and we must climb. We must see the hope that we have before us. Here are the jagged rocks. There is the tumultuous ocean. It will drown you quick as you could say the word go. I had an opportunity one time to do some fishing huh? in Ireland. Some of y'all are fishermen and fisherwomen. And uh, there was this great, what's called a breakwater, and, uh, or a tide wall, as someone would call it. And these were these giant concrete man-made walls that were on the coast of Dublin, Ireland. And uh, you could climb up on top of them and go fishing right in the ocean. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me was watching the water beat up against the bottom of this great tide wall. And I got to thinking in my mind, if I ever fell off the side of this thing into this water, it would be game over. I mean, that water, I mean, it was wavy. It was violent. 
And I could only imagine what it would be like to be a shipwrecked sailor at the bottom of a great mountain and cliff trying to find safety if my boat was sunk out there in that violent rushing tide and water. We must find the steps and God will show us the way to climb up and live. Spurgeon said, quote, How infinitely higher than we are is the salvation of God. We are low and groveling, but it towers like some tall cliff far above us. This is its glory, and it is our delight when we have once climbed onto the rock and claimed an interest in it. But while we are as yet trembling seekers, the glory and sublimity of salvation appall us and we feel that we are too unworthy even to be partakers of it. Hence, we are led to cry for grace upon grace and to see how dependent we are for everything, not only for the Savior, but also for the power to believe on Him. David prays, Lord, lead me to the Lord. Think about that. Now let me ask this question. God, lead me to God. Do we pray like that? That's a good question, isn't it? Question, did David pray like that? He most certainly did. And does the Bible record the prayer of David in Psalm 61 and God puts his eternal stamp of divine inspiration on this prayer by including it in sacred writing in Holy Scripture? Is the answer yes? Here is one reason why I know we don't pray, Low Lord, lead me to the Lord is because we do not view ourselves as helpless and needy as David viewed himself. If we really viewed ourselves as sailors stricken at sea, cast away from our boats, drowning in the tide wash, with no hope except for that God would carve uh, steps in the side of the bluff so that we could climb up and find safety. We as a people, modern 21st century Western Americans, this is how we would say it. Well, bless God, we're just going to have to get a work crew to get together and we're going to have to dig, a, dig steps in the side of that mountain. We're going to have to do it. I mean, after all, if we don't do it, the job won't get done. But that's not what David prayed. Oh God, lead me to God. In our prayer lives, if we sense a certain distance, a far awayness, far away feelings from God, one of the great and powerful prayers that we can make is, Oh God, lead me back to God. Oh God, I am poor, I am needy, I can't save nor help myself, and I need you to lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Oh God, be a rock higher than myself, and oh God, lead me to yourself. 
how God reveals himself to his trusting people in verses 3 through 4? Well, I'm glad you asked. How does God lead himself and how does God reveal himself to his trusting people in verses 3 through 4? Well, here are four more metaphors for you. Aren't you excited? I am. Because I have a knowledge and God has helped me to see what these metaphors actually mean. There's four of them in two verses. Can you find them? Verse 3, he said, For you, talking about God, have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Verse 4, Let me dwell in your tent forever. At the end of verse 4, he said, Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So here are your four metaphors. Number one, a refuge. Number two, a strong tower. Number three, a tent. And number four, a shelter. Did you catch that? It's right there in the passage. I can't make it up. I'm not that smart. Four great metaphors. And this is how God reveals himself to David. This is how David knows God to be. It's a double-sided coin, isn't it? God reveals himself to David, and therefore then David knows God to be these four things to him. The first metaphor that David employs is, I know you guys know all this stuff already. <laughs> huh? <laughs> but I'm here to help. When you feel distant from God, God is four things to you. Clear? Somebody say amen. Number one, God is a refuge. This one is connected to the rock. Let me read this from Dr. Boyce. Quote, For you have been my refuge. This image is closest to that of God being a rock and, in fact, is frequently linked to it. My rock in whom I take refuge, Psalm 18 and verse 2. My rock of refuge, Psalms 31 and verse 2 and Psalm 71 and verse 3. My, my mighty rock, my refuge, Psalm 62 and verse 7. And the rock in whom I take refuge, Psalm 94 verse 22. It calls to mind a retreat such as David used when fleeing from King Saul, end quote. What does this mean? Almost every time that David calls God his rock, there is a similar metaphor that's connected. The refuge and the rock are essentially the same thing. And it is, again, communicating this idea that this place, this mountain crevice, was a place of refuge and safety for David when he was fleeing from his enemies. But notice the second metaphor in verse 3. He says, a strong tower against the enemy. Not only was God a rock of refuge, but God is also a strong tower against the enemy. In this particular metaphor, no longer is David thinking of some random sort of out-of-the-way wilderness refuge. Now David is picturing a walled city. So strong towers were not out in the middle of the wilderness. 
Strong towers are what God and what the Jewish people built around the city of Jerusalem. And when there were foreign invaders coming to threaten the livelihood of the Jewish people, they would retreat in behind their walls in the great walled city. If you've ever watched the film Troy, all right, not recommending that obviously for kids, not at all, but it's, you know, I've talked to people that, where they can understand. And if you've seen or at least seen parts of the film Troy, uh, you know the story is that they can't get in the great walled city of Troy, and so they have to build this great Trojan horse, and ultimately they sneak in by night. The reason that David calls God a walled city is because David is moving from the wilderness refuge. Now he's on the very border. He's on the very wall of the city of Jerusalem. And he's no longer out there by himself. Now he envisions himself with the mind's eye of faith that he is in one of the great strongholds and towers in the city of Jerusalem. And he is defending the city against conquering or attempting conquering invaders. Now this is important because there's movement happening now in this psalm. You may not know it, but there is great movement I believe that David has the city of Jerusalem in mind with its walled towers and uh, great wall and fortifications. He envisions himself with his cohorts defending the city of God. Thirdly, a tent. Hmm, I wonder what this could be a reference to. I wonder what great tent there was in ancient Israel. Oh, wait a minute, the tabernacle was a tent. Can't help myself to be novel from time to time. But the tent is a reference to God's dwelling place, the tabernacle. The tabernacle literally was a tent. Let me dwell, verse 4. Look at it, Psalm 61 in verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. This is a reference to the tabernacle of God where the offerings were made, sacrifices, blood was being shed. And the tabernacle represented the manifest presence of God on planet earth for God's people. So David moves from remoteness out in the middle of the caves and the wilderness of Israel to the walled city, to the great strong tower of Jerusalem, and now past the strong tower all the way to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle itself, into the presence of God. Well, what did David say he felt in verse number two? He said in verse number two, from the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. So he envisions himself somewhere way out in a world separated from God. But slowly with his mind's eye of faith, he's moving from this place of separation and isolation and far awayness from God. He's now in the city of Jerusalem on its great walls and he's at the tabernacle of our God. Great movement is happening. Where or whom is the movement towards? It's towards God. What do you do when you feel like God is a world away? Move toward Him. Go where you know God is. This is what David does. But last and certainly not least, look at the second part of verse 4. 
Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. We've discussed this somewhat before. You remember in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant of God dwelt, you had two great angels, cherubim, the Bible calls them. And with their wings, they covered their eyes like horses have blinders. And they looked down upon the mercy seat of God, which is a representation of God's redemptive purposes, God's redeeming work. The mercy seat is where the blood was uh, sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement. But here you have, let David take refuge under the shelter of God's wings. This has a twofold meaning, the shelter of God's wings. It calls to remembrance the Ark of the Covenant and God's angels, God's holy angels peering down on the redemptive work of God. God buying back sinners from the slave market of sin with the blood of the atonement. This is a very vivid imagery. But then secondly, these wings speak of the wings of God himself. Isn't that wonderful? It's not just the angels that have wings. God himself has wings. What does this mean? David meditates that he is resting safely under the shadow of God's wings in the very breast of God next to the heart of God. Whatever happened to from the ends of the earth I call to you? What happened to faraway feelings from God? What happened to the distance that he felt? It's over, isn't it? How is it over? Because David envisions, he meditates with the mind's eye of faith. And he sees himself moving from a place of isolation and separation, way out in the middle of the wilderness in a rock in a crevice somewhere, in a refuge, to the walled city of Jerusalem, the city of God, where the presence of God dwelt. The strong towers that outlined various parts of these great walls. And he sees himself moving past the walls to the very door of the tabernacle itself where the offerings were made past the door of the tabernacle into the most holy place next to the heart of God. Was that the, or an offertory I heard near to the heart of God? That is a precious hymn. Thank you. Near to the heart of God. That's how David views himself. I don't know about you, but the next time that I feel distance and separation from God, I might want to turn to Psalm 61. And I might want, like David, with the mind's eye of faith, to stop viewing myself as a world away from the Lord, but moving ever closer to God's presence resting upon the breast of God himself under the shadow of his wings, next near to the very heart of God. I like John 21 and verse 20. It was said of John the Apostle. Some of you may be aware of this great passage. 
Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at supper. Here you had John, John the Beloved, John the Apostle, John the Revelator is going to write the last book of the Bible. And what's John doing at supper? He's leaning on the breast of Christ. He is in Christ's bosom. Someone says, well, images of that kind of intimacy make me uncomfortable. Good. Because this is the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. In his, under his wings. Clutched. The imagery literally as a fowl or a hen clutches its chicks, its eggs underneath its breast. Any of y'all have ever raised chickens, you know that's what they do. Don't they? Protect them eggs. David says, that's what I need God to do to me, and David believes that that's what God is doing. So close to God, so intimate with God, that you hear the heartbeat of God. And the heartbeat of God is to remove those feelings of farawayness and bring you so close to Him that your heartbeat and God's heartbeat align. They match. Each of these images are arranged in such a way to become increasingly warm and intimate as they draw us closer to the person of God even unto God's very heart. Somebody said, what's the point of preaching? I don't know. I'm not real good at preaching. But I know the point of this sermon is to bring you to the heart of God. I don't know about you, but I need to be brought to the heart of God. Especially when tragedy strikes. What do the Raidersdorf family need? They need to be under the shadow of God's wings, don't they? Maybe this morning we'll pray for them that God will lead them to the shadow of His wings. You feel like God's a world away? Somebody says, well, I never felt like that. I know you're more spiritual than David. <laughs> I have felt that way. I might feel that way tomorrow. <laughs> I might feel that way today. <laughs> but if you feel like you're a world away from God and you have no one else to turn to, may we, with the eyes of faith, envisage, envisage ourselves moving from the rock of refuge out isolated in the wilderness to the strong towers in the city of our God to the tabernacle of meeting and to the holy of holies to draw ever closer under into the heart of God seeking intimacy with him under the shadow of his wings. Let's pray. Lord, lead us to the heart of God. David wasn't happy with just standing on the walls of Jerusalem with his friends having a good time. 
He wasn't happy just standing at the door of the tabernacle at the tent of meeting. He wanted to go all the way under the shadow of God's wings in the breast of God like John the Beloved. Lord, let us embrace you. Lord, embrace us as you say you are. Let us trust you for that embrace. The confidence and the safety that we will receive from you. Father, we do pray for our brother and sister in Christ, Kathy and Eric Raidersdorf. Lord, under the shadow of your wings, the strong tower, the rock of refuge. Lord, into the tent. Oh God, draw them into your presence, I pray. Protect them, protect their hearts and minds. Surround this family with your ever merciful love. In Jesus Christ's precious name, amen.